That is the New Testament reading of 1 Corinthians chapter 8, starting with the first verse. Hear ye the word of the Lord. Now concerning food, sacrifice to idols. We know that all of us possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Anyone who claims to know something does not yet have the necessary knowledge. But anyone who loves God is known by him. Hence, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that no idol in the world really exists and that there is no God but one. Indeed, even though there be many so-called gods in heaven and earth, as in fact there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, one Father, from whom are all things and are for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. It is not everyone, however, who has this knowledge, since some have become so accustomed to idols until now. They still eat of the food, they still think of the food they eat as food offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not bring us close to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off than if we do. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if others see you who possess knowledge eating in the temple of an idol, might they not, since their conscience is weak, be encouraged to the point of eating food sacrificed to idols? So, by your knowledge... Those weak believers for whom Christ died are destroyed. But when you thus sin against the members of your family and wound their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food is a cause of their failing, I will never eat meat so that I may not cause one of them to fall. God's word for God's people and God's people said amen. Amen. On this uh, first Sunday in February for a little bit, I would like to talk about just love and let it go. Just love and let it go. Here we have uh, Paul's letter to the the church at Corinth, also called 1 Corinthians. It's uh, Corinth was a crossroad of culture and commerce and politics. It was a pretty booming city. There was a lot going on in this area, and so the Apostle Paul went there to start a church. Uh, some of the scholars say that he started the church somewhere around either the fall of uh, 50 A.D. or the spring of 51 A.D., and according to Acts 18, he actually stayed there for about 18 months as a leather worker and a preacher. And after he founded the church there, he left and he came back twice. Uh, The second time that he came back to the church at Corinth and was in that area working, he wrote what we call Romans, the letter to the church at Rome. And then he left again, and later he wrote a series of letters to this church that was in Corinth, uh, some of which were lost. 
and he references that in 1 Corinthians 5 and 9 and 2 Corinthians 2 and 4. He wrote a bunch of letters to the church at Corinth, but we were able to preserve two of them, and we call them 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. This city was a popular city. It was full of wealthy people because it had a harbor, and in order to transport goods and services, you had to do it by boat. And so if they knew you had to come in by boat, well, we'll just put a tax or a tariff on you coming in, and we'll get a piece of that money. Even if you're not coming to spend the money here, we're still going to get a piece of that. And so this allowed some of the people in the church at Corinth or in the city of Corinth to become wealthy, but not everybody, just some people. And so you had this church that was mixing and mingling the rich and the poor, the haves and the have-nots, those who are capable of doing things and those who are not capable of doing what they want. And the longer they were together, there was discord among the brothers and sisters. I mean, you know, we've heard of that before, discord among the brethren in the church. And the longer they're together, the more opportunity for the discord there is to happen. So Paul had to write some letters to get them straightened out. Paul wanted to get rid of the division. So he said, even in 1 Corinthians 1 and 10, Now I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all be in agreement, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same purpose. There's a benefit to being with like-minded people. You had some people in the church that weren't necessarily like-minded, and they started to argue about who baptized who and who followed who and who didn't. Some people were claiming that they were a part of Apollos, and some people claimed that they were following Paul, and Paul had to set all that straight. Ask them a simple question or two. Did any of these people that you claim you were following get crucified for you? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Apollos? And then he went on to say that he was happy that he hadn't baptized but only a couple of people. Still in 1 Corinthians 1, he he only baptized a couple of people because if he had baptized more, they'd have thought they were special. Uh I got baptized by the pastor (laughs) or the apostle Paul. So Paul had to clear all of that up because he felt if he didn't, it would have caused more trouble. And then in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul goes on to talk about wisdom and saying that us being wise by human standards is not enough. Matter of fact, he said that God uses the foolish to confound the wise. He shames the wise. He confounds them. He confuses them because if you think you've done it on your own, there's no opportunity to grow or do any more. So don't think that you're wise by your own standards. Do what God says and be judged by God's standards. And and then there were some other divisions in the church uh, at Corinth. Paul has to teach even more. He said that he had given them milk in the teaching, and now he had to give them meat. You can't just come into something and be at the same level and expect to progress. You can't start a particular job and then continue to do the same job because eventually they're going to ask you to do more. 
If you can start off doing 10 files a day, pretty soon somebody's going to need 15, and then they're going to need 20. And if you can only keep up with 10, you might not be there long. Same thing with Christianity. You, you can come in at one level, but then eventually you're going to have to start doing some discipleship training. You don't have to be able to read and study the word and pray on your own and not just do every Sunday. Yeah. You've got to grow from glory to glory and faith to faith. You've got to grow in levels. You cannot just stay where you are. You have to keep growing. Biology teaches us that if something is not growing, it's dying. So we have to grow. So Paul teaches on sexual immorality in the church. He also teaches on church members having grievances with each other and deciding to sue each other instead of taking it and settling it with the saints. Paul says that all things are lawful, but not necessarily beneficial. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. And then from there on, Paul has instructions about marriage and the unmarried and taking care of the widows and those who are unmarried. And then we get to the passage that we read in chapter 8. He talks about food, and really a little more than food, actually. First part of this passage, there is confusion. Let the church say confusion. confusion. There is confusion. The main question they're asking in uh, or being answered in verse uh, eight, I mean, verse chapter eight, verse four is, is it right for a Christian to eat food that was meant to be sacrificed to idols? There was a lack of understanding in the church at Corinth. There was an uncertainty. There was a growing controversy, if you will, over the appropriateness of Christians eating food meant for idols in pagan temples. You see, there were other religions around at the time where they had their own sacrifices going on. And for example, you may need, I think you need 10 goats to sacrifice, but you only end up using five. Well, you don't want the other five to go to waste, so you give it to the market. Uh, and in giving it to the market, people would then go back and buy those goats. This is a hypothetical, but you're trying to explain what it is. Christians would buy that goat, cook it up, and eat it. Some people had a problem with that because it was originally intended to be sacrificed to idols and it just didn't, the le- basically the leftovers got used at the next barbecue. <laughs> this wasn't meat from the ritual. They didn't come to the table and say, oh, you, you, you done sacrificing that? All right, well, let me take that. I'm hungry. No, this was the extra. But people still had a problem with that. The followers of Christ were eating this meat. And Paul had to clear up the confusion about whether or not these believers in Christ, these believers who are in a city that is packed with a lot of pagans, and so you're going to have to cross paths with them, should they be eating this food? So then there's the clarification. Let the church say clarification. Clarification Clarification comes in four through six. Uh, There are many idols that represent gods that don't exist and we know that as Christians and there is only one God that is creator of all things and the giver of life so it doesn't matter where it came from 
or where they thought they were using it for. Everything is the Lord's. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It's all his. It's not the idols. It's not the pagans. It's his. And we can go to Nehemiah 9 and 6 where it says, You are the Lord. You alone have made heaven and the heaven of heavens. And with their hosts, the earth and all that was in it and all the seas and all that is in them. To all of them, you gave life. And the host of heaven worships you. God made everything, so I'm not worried about some meat on the grill. <laughs> and if, we, if that's not enough Bible for you, let's go to Colossians 1, 15 through 20. When we're talking about Jesus, it says that he is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation, and for him, things in heaven and things on earth were created. Things visible... Things invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers or all things that have been created through him and for him. He himself before all things. And in him all things hold together. For he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead so that he might come to have first place in everything. And for in him the fullness of God is pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood. There's that word again, the blood, through the blood of his cross. It's his, so I'm not worried about me on the grill. And if you don't want to have to flip through your Bible all the time to find something, here's one that's on the very first page when you open it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So whatever anybody's using it for is not my concern. I, 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 I have a theological problem with people. Uh, and for a while, we were uh, there was some... some People going all over the country preaching this and got websites up and videos and instructional videos up. And they were talking about it's demons in that and it's demons in this. And if you buy this kind of furniture or you buy this kind of thing with this on it, you are secretly worshiping that demon. I have a problem with that. I, I'm, I don't know, maybe it's because I've been trained as an engineer. Maybe I'm just too logical and analytical about it. But I don't feel like you can accidentally worship anything. I just, I don't understand it. For me to worship Jesus, I have to think about Jesus and all he's done for me. I have to dedicate my heart to Jesus and think about how he died for my sins and rose from the grave. There's no way to accidentally worship Jesus. If there was... We could just pack up and go home. I'll just go out to the street corners and give people crackers and grape juice and sprinkle some water on them when they're not looking, and we good. So if you can't accidentally worship Jesus, I don't think you can accidentally worship anything else. Maybe that's just me. Maybe I'm not understanding, and I could be wrong. I, I ain't been proven wrong yet, but worship is a, is a declarative act. It is intentional. You are dedicating your heart, your mind, your soul to some, sub, to some subject. And so you can't tell me that if you put something on something and didn't tell me that, ha-ha, I got you. You're a part of this new church. Now, no, no, no. God created everything, and the rest of these are tools that we use them for. And so because God created everything, we learn that there is no connection between food and spirituality in this substance, in this situation. 
the food is the food. What one person tried to use it for and what another person tried to use it for, there's no connection. Eating it or not eating it don't bring you any closer to God. So there is no connection. We spend too much time worried about created things instead of worrying about the creator. The creator is greater than any creative thing. But we would rather argue about petty things. We need to let it go. There is no connection between the food and the spirituality. So we have the confusion and we have the clarification, but there's still a concern. Let the church say concern. Concern. There's a concern that Apostle Paul talks about. He warns that, however, not all Christians fully realize this and they are upset, some of them, when they see these people eating the meat. And I can understand that that's a valid concern. You know, we pretty much get where we are by watching other people. Seen it happen in my own household. My daughter walked a little faster than my son, but that's because she got to watch my son walk around. We watch somebody when we get a new job. Here's how you do the job. Watch me. Here's how you do this. Watch me. All of our excess, success rather, not excess, success comes from trying to imitate those who go before us. And even our failures come from us trying to imitate somebody who did something before us. So we watch. So the new people watch the veterans. And that's how we move along. And so these early Christians, Christians at Corinth were observant. And they saw something that bothered them. And they spoke on it. That's a good thing. They spoke on it. If they didn't speak on it, there wouldn't have been this confusion and Paul wouldn't have been able to write the letter to clear it up. They spoke on it. And we have to be careful because there are many times there are people watching Christians and something bothers them and they never speak on it. They just leave the church. There might be a good explanation for what whatever Christian, senior Christian was doing that the new Christian saw is doing, but they never got a chance to explain or clarify or address the concern. They just left and went back to where they came from. So it's a concern, and in response to the concern, Paul gives us a challenge. Let the church say challenge. challenge. The challenge he has is for us not to become a stumbling block to other Christians. The reasons why he says in verses 9 and 11 is to do so is to sin against your weaker brother. And to sin against your weaker brother is also to sin against your Savior. We have to be mindful of those who come behind us. I remember seeing an inspirational picture of uh, somebody working out and they stopped working out and uh, their infant child was watching. And the, po- the caption for the picture said, I almost gave up. But then I remembered who was watching. We do things not for ourselves necessarily, but for those who come behind us. And when they say weaker, they're not talking about the physicality. Uh, it's, it's, uh, and, and they're not talking about the, 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 uh, the strength of a person. 
when Paul uses that word weak in the Greek, it's more about social status or conscience or intelligence. The, the problem was not always about the food. The, the reason these people were able to eat the food, like I said earlier, is Corinth was full of, of uh, richer people. It was because the church, this Christianity thing, broke some of the social codes. So rich ended up having to hang out with poor, and men ended up having to hang out with women, and they weren't all above each other, and some of the things that they were doing were still being honored. And so this wasn't just about I'm eating meat and you're not. This is I'm pretty much uh, urban vernacular, a.k.a. slang. I'm balling in front of you and rubbing it in your face. So it was about the elite, how the elite treated those who were not elite. And so you don't want to cause your weaker brother to stumble. What is a stumbling block? It's a cause of stumbling. It's a cause of perplexity. It's a cause of error. It's used in the Bible both literally and figuratively. Leviticus 19 and 14 says, You shall not revile the death, death or put a stumbling block before the blind. You shall fear your God. I am the Lord. That's a physical stumbling block. You've got somebody in a pathway and you're trying to obstruct their path. It's also figurative. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 22 through 21, 22 to 24, it says, For Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greek, Christ, the power of God and wisdom of God. There's a figurative stumbling block during that time. People couldn't get behind someone being the son of God that was executed like a common criminal. That seemed a little strange to some people. People couldn't get behind somebody willingly wanting to die for their sins so that you could be saved. So both Jews and Gentiles alike kind of found that confusing. But those who understood got the power of God. And so it's a stumbling block to your faith. There were those who had a little trouble coming into the faith to understand it. But then there's also stumbling blocks that can prevent you from obeying God. Peter tried to be a stumbling block in Matthew 16 where it says, uh, around 21 through 23, it says, From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo a great suffering at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it. Lord, this must never happen to you. But then he turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. For you are setting your mind not on the divine things, but human things. Peter thought he meant well by what he was doing. He didn't want to see Jesus get crucified. So he thought he was telling him what he needed to do. But what he was telling him to do was opposite of what God told Jesus to do. So there was a stumbling block. Stuff that prevents us from obeying God is a stumbling block. So we don't want to cause others to stumble. We do want to become 
a stepping stone. It says that knowledge puffs up in the first and third verse, but love builds up. There is an adage that they say you never look down on a person unless you're reaching down to help them back up. Knowledge can lead to an inflated obsession with one's own interests. Love, however, it, it, it eagerly seeks to edify the neighbor, even if it involves giving up some of your own rights. Just because we have knowledge that others don't have just doesn't mean we can treat them no good. You can have the knowledge, but I've learned if people don't think you care, if people don't think you like them, if people aren't feeling the love from you, if they think that you think you're better than them, you can have all the knowledge in the world, but they won't receive it. I've had to learn this lesson myself. There have been opportunities where I knew I had the right answer to something and even offered to give it. But because I did not have the relationship, because they had not necessarily felt the, the love, had they not felt the edification, and I was just coming in and telling them, hey, this is what you need to do, and this is how you fix it, it wasn't received, regardless of whether or not it was right. The relationship and the delivery are crucial to the person receiving your knowledge. You have to love first before you can share your knowledge. Paul is concerned about these weaker people, their conscience, their social status. You have these upper class people mixing with these lower class people, and that was the appeal to Christianity. That was the the appeal why certain people joined, because whatever social status they were on in, in, in the society or whatever religion they were a part of, you pretty much started off where you started off and you were stuck there. There was no climbing to the top. There was no working your way out. If you were born this way or you were born to this family, that's it. But God is not a respecter of persons. And so we all are equal in Christ. We're all to be servants. And so people like that. You mean I can go someplace where I'm not on the bottom of a totem pole? You mean I can go someplace where people will treat me a little better? And you know that is since we are in the Black History Month yeah. <laughs> that I, I would say that was the appeal of the church uh, was taking word and worship last semester and we talked about titles and the fact of they wanted to, uh, someone brought up why is it that in uh, certain churches they say certain churches but they meant predominantly Caucasian you call the pastor by their first name and everybody was John and Bill and Bob and this that and you know whoever worked whatever job they had to work uh, all the congregants were all on the first name basis, but when you went to a black church, it was pastor this, brother that, doctor this, you know, teacher this, educator, you know, everybody was referred to by their title. And so the, the professor actually had to break it down to some of our uh, lesser informed uh, students about what was going on. And the problem was during that time, this is, is, it comes all the way back from the, the 40s and the 50s. You, everybody was Mr. And, and, and Pastor and Doctor and Attorney, and, and they were recognized by their title at church because all week they were boy. Yeah. Yeah. 
All week, they were a whole lot more offensive stuff that I won't violate this pulpit by saying. But they were that. But when they came to church, they were somebody. And so that's why the black church was so strong, historically speaking, because you could go somewhere and be respected. And that is something that Christianity has offered all the time. Now, not everybody has offered it because we've also just real talk. We've used this to justify slavery. You know, they were on the plantation reading the scriptures about slave, obey your masters. Not the rest of it. And that's why they kept them from reading. Because if they learned how to read, they'd be, hey, it's a whole bunch of other stuff in here that don't talk about that. But we are concerned. Paul was concerned about the weaker people. And Christianity offered this time for these people to interact. And lo and behold, sometimes when these people interacted, they, they went back into their older ways. And so we had to shut that down. So this was more about, more than just who's eating meat. And more than just about what people got to them. There was a, a classism issue there. There was a lack of love. And he was telling them to let that mentality go. And so we have the confusion. We have the clarification. We still have the concern. And we've been issued a challenge. And so there's a conclusion. Let the church say conclusion. In conclusion, Paul says, if what I eat is going to make another Christian sin, then I will never eat meat again. For as long as I love, I don't want to make another Christian stumble. There are arguments that I've had or could have had and avoided where I knew I was right. Had the documentation and everything to back it. I was right. But I had to realize, do I want to win the fight? Or do I want to rend the relationship? And so there are some things you don't do because you know it can cause somebody else to stumble. There are some things I don't do as a pastor that I know are perfectly okay for me to do. Nothing wrong with it. But I just don't do it because if there are people who, if they see me as a pastor doing that and they have not come into the certain knowledge, they may stumble. And so I don't do them. There's plenty of things I could be doing, but I don't do it so that people don't stumble. I want to avoid even the appearance of evil. And Paul does this out of love. He loves the people at the church of Corinth so much. He loves the people who will become into the knowledge of Christ Jesus for the remission of sins so much that he decides, even if that's a problem, not only am I not going to eat that meat, but I'm not going to eat meat, period. I'll go that far to keep from causing confusion. I'll go that far to keep somebody else from getting hurt because of the love. We as Christians are to love one another. The Bible says in 1 John 14, I mean 4, 16 through 21, 
So we have known to believe the love God has for us. God is love. And those who abide in love abide in God. And God abides in them. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness on the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out all fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. We love because he first loved us. Those who say, I love God and hate their brothers are liars. For those who do not have a brother or sister who they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. This commandment we have from him is this. Those who love God must love their brothers and sisters also. It's an interesting question and it makes sense. You don't see God, but you see your neighbor every day. And if you don't love them, how can you love God who you have not seen? That is what we are supposed to do, is love. Even from the words of the master. We learn in Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together and asked him a question to test him. One of them, a lawyer, said, Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? He said to them, You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You should love your neighbor as yourself. On these two laws, laying all, on these two commandments, hang all the law and the prophets. Love. They asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And he said, to love God and to love people. Amen. And that's what we're to do. Amen. And I like that he gave. They asked him for one thing, and he gave them two. Because that's how much he loves us. He always gives us more than we ask for. Amen. We asked for the remission of sins and he gave it to us and gave us grace and life and health and strength. And he went to the cross and died for us for love. And so because of that, we are to love and we are to let all of the pettiness go. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit, the doors of the church are open and we invite you to come.